Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, compañeros, welcome to another edition of The Fifth Column Podcast. We are back for a very special episode. It is me, Michael Moynihan of Vice News, and I am here without my compadres, Camille Foster and Matt Welch, because as I have done in the past on the Patreon, uh, this is sort of like the historian series, but instead of historian, it's journalist, podcaster, filmmaker, renaissance man, John Ronson. A lot of you have written in and asked for John to come back. He's been on the show before. It was a couple of years ago. So John and I are old friends, and he has a new project, uh, a podcast called Things Fell Apart. It's sort of the origin stories, a series of small vignettes about how the culture wars began, tracing them back to the first person who was shamed on the internet, who John tracks down and talks to, to earlier school book debates in West Virginia in the 1970s. So clearly this is right up our alley. So I gave him a call and we sat down today and talked about this new series of his. Now, a few bits of throat clearing. It's not just me asking John questions. It's a conversation, not an interview. These are different things. And so essentially, this feels like having lunch, having drinks uh, with John uh, about his new podcast. And that's all I need to say. But I really recommend that you go listen to the podcast. If you haven't read John's journalism, you should start with the book Them, uh, first person to really write about Alex Jones back in the day in 2000, 2001, The Men Who Stare at Goats, The Psychopath Test, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and a billion other things that you should also check out. But right now, go find Things Fell Apart. You won't regret it. So here is my conversation with my old pal, John Ronson. And you know, it's funny because we were just talking before we started um, about a lot of things about people that we've met that are famous and have disappointed us. Yeah, Number one. we both did the same thing. We shouldn't name, name any names, yeah, yeah, but yeah. we both did that same thing about like when, when if you, on the rare occasions <laughs> you end up in like a celebrity limousine. Yes, you always like say to the driver, "So who's the who's, worst?" Who's the worst? <laughs> and they, in in it's you would assume it's some sort of lawyerly thing. Like I cannot actually, and they always do tell you. Yeah, always. any point like, well, here's the worst one. And uh, as we were saying, they always match up with previous stories you've heard. But um, you know, we were talking about. Um, people going a bit mad uh, at certain points in their life. And I was talking about people who are older and have this sort of ideological dementia and they start becoming, you know, extremists in, of, of one type or another. But the thing is, in, in the podcast, which, as you know, I think is excellent. I think I have some issues with it, but I, I think it's excellent. Right. And the only reason I have issues with it is because you're too nice. And you're in, sure. you're, you're, you said I, it at I one can point. probably guess what your issues are going to be. Uh, and, and I hope they're very minor. I hope <laughs> they are very minor, yeah. actually. But, you know, when I respect somebody as much as I respect you, the minor ones, I, they become major to me. They rankle. Yes, they rankle. So, <laughs> so the interesting um, thing is we're talking about this in people who have, let's just put it this way, people who have mental health issues. What I found really interesting, and there's eight episodes, and everyone is, you know, more fascinating than the previous one, the QAnon guy, Isaac. Isaac Cappy. Cappy. And it's really interesting because I listened to that episode. I got online. I was looking at certain things on Twitter. And I wondered, he clearly was suffering from a mental illness. That seems rather clear to me. Do you disagree? No, no. I'm just thinking about, I mean, I... 
the word that popped into my mind when when you were saying that was was narcissism. I think yeah. there's a preponderance of narcissistic traits. Tell us a little about who he is, by the way, before so people know. Sure. Yeah. So Isaac Cappy was a very talented young man in Albuquerque. Yeah. Actor. And, an actor, musician, yeah. did this really sweet song called Champagne Bike Ride, which had a bit of a life. I think the Ford Motor Company used it. Yeah. Then he ended up in um, Breaking Bad. He had a very small part in Breaking Bad. He had a slightly bigger part in Thor, yeah. like a memorable part in Thor. He played the pet shop guy in yes. Thor. Yeah. Yeah. Thor walks in and says, I need a horse. <laughs> and uh, Isaac says, we don't sell horses, we sell blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that scene from when I saw Thor. Yeah. So he was memorable. He was talented. Like a lot of people, he moved to LA and then the loneliness just seeps into your bones. Yeah. That, I think this is why I wanted to do Isaac's story, really, because I've been in those yeah, fringes sure. of LA circles where you just feel, you know, so lonely. Yeah. Um, so you hike Griffith Park every day, like these kind of spectral figures. Yeah. You go to Hollywood and you have a meeting and the producer tells you you're the voice of your generation. As Stephen Mangum says, they kill you with encouragement because then you never, you never hear from them again. Yes. And the voice of the generation that I can't bother to call back in the next week or two weeks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I always found that and my son, who also has, has spent time in those circles, yeah. told me this really sad thing, which I'm sure everybody listening will know this, but I didn't know it, that people manipulate their Instagram locations to make it look like they're somewhere more glamorous than they actually Is were. Is that right? Yeah. Like, hey, I'm like, because you can pretend to be on the Warner Brothers lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That people do that. And I just found that just, just profoundly sad. I've always thought... It's such a fine line between making it and not making it. And you are the type of person, <clears throat> knowing you, we've known each other for a couple of years now, a number of years now. Um, you are the type of person that when you see somebody manipulating their location on the lot, your response to that is a profound sadness. Whereas a lot of people, probably myself included sometime, is to say, what a fucking loser. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have that, like the people that go to LA, they go to Hollywood and they try to be something, they become incredibly pretentious, they lie, they cut people out of their lives if they have the opportunity, if it allows them one rung higher up the ladder. You have a certain sympathy for these people. Yeah, right? I really did. I remember actually years ago I went to LA, I was meeting a really famous screenwriter. So this was a private conversation, so I probably shouldn't name him. But, yeah, that's fine. But just before I met him, I was in Starbucks and everybody in Starbucks was like writing their screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. And so I said to him, and he was a, he's a very accomplished and successful screenwriter, and I said to him, like, you know, when you go into, you know, places like Starbucks and you see all these people like writing their spec screenplays, don't you just feel like, doesn't your heart just go out to them? Don't you just feel incredibly sorry for them? And he said, no, and I'll tell you the reason why not, because I hate them. That's, and yeah. he's successful, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very I mean, there successful. is a certain amount of that that's necessary to be successful yeah. is, you know, um, I know that there's some, I think the Atlantic did something a while ago about the science of this, but of the nice guy finishing last. Right, right. You're the, you're the one example that that's not true. Yeah, I think so. I, I think I've been very lucky. I think I'm given an exemption quite a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah. So for instance, when I both sides things... Yes. People don't really mind. Uh, we've and been, I just feel very lucky. I hope, uh, you know, and it's funny, this podcast, we've been on the Patreon thing that we do, which is where I think we'll put this first. 
We've we've argued in in favor of both sidesism, not what aboutism, which is a different thing. Yeah, but the both sides not like yeah. false, like, no, not, not false equivalence. No, 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 I, no, I mean, no. that's why yeah. both siding things became such a dirty term. Yes, yeah. But actually, there's yeah. much to be said for it. And you know, in this, and I want to get back to Isaac, but in yeah. this in this uh, series, which you attempt to get to the sort of start of so many of these culture war issues, where where in American history they start, and. I tried, there was maybe one person where you didn't have full empathy for the whole time, which is what I think makes it so compelling, is that in a culture now where, whether it's cable news, whether it's Twitter, somebody who has a different opinion, you're going to set them on fire, right? You're going to slash and burn. So it was quite quite refreshing to hear you allow people to speak and not set them on fire and say yeah. you're a bad person. The only one I would say that you were um, necessarily, especially tough on, was the woman who started the school book controversy in, right. Virginia? Uh, in West Virginia? West Virginia. Uh, you could argue, you know, the the, the two things that came along yeah. that finally galvanized the evangelical right into mm. action, because for 50 years, the evangelical right weren't involved in any culture wars at all. Mm, yeah. The Scopes Monkey trial, I think, was, remember in the 1920s, this was a big trial about yeah. e teaching evolution in schools. And I think they won. I think the Christians won. And then I think it was overturned on a technicality. But yeah. the... But the the amount of mockery they got yeah. just from, you know, the New York Times and so on just um, made them withdraw. And they withdrew for 50 years. And the two things that brought them back out to fight the culture wars was busing and diversity mm -hmm. of thought in school textbooks, which I guess you could say is like a kind of another form of busing. And yeah. she, Alice Moore, was the very first person to... Alice Moore, this 80-year-old lady in West Virginia, yeah. church minister's wife, is... One of the instigators of the modern culture, one of the main instigators of the modern culture. You think so? Wars. I think so, just just by virtue and of... not just in the CRT sense, because we're having these debates now about school books and what is being taught in schools, but just in a, in a larger sense, you think that she's... Yeah, I think yeah. so. Like in the in the mid-70s, you know, they got, um, they, they, they went for it with abortion, finally, after really being manipulated into caring about abortion. The yeah. Christian right didn't care about abortion for, for a long time after Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, the, these protests about diversity of thought in school textbooks yeah. was what really kicked the whole thing off. Um, so yeah, I gave her a bit of a hard time because she was... Uh... Well, I think one of the things that, which is appropriate about it, and I said um, uh, to Nancy, who listeners to this podcast now, and I, we were just talking to her, when I, when I saw her this morning, I said, you know, re-listening to John's thing about the uh, school textbooks, and there was a moment where I realized it was exactly what happened to me when I was in Florida shooting a piece about this. I talked to a guy and he was all anti-CRT. Um, nice enough guy, but, you know, he was in the ideological dementia phase, uh, 70 plus, no kids, but he was fighting these battles, which is fairly interesting. And when I said, where are the bits in the, in the, the, the syllabus here? He said, well, no, it's not here, but there's a teacher's guide which mentions this. And she says to you that there was a teacher's guide that mentioned Eldridge Cleaver's soul on ice. I believe Yeah, it's the exact same thing today. It's yeah. Exactly the same. That it's, it's not the, we're not teaching it, but it's kind of redolent of it. Right. So one of the things that she was most upset about was this poem, which was about a spontaneous Amazing. orgy breaking out on a bus yes. <laughs> because the world was about to end in a nuclear war at lunchtime. So she's telling me about this poem and the more it goes on, the more I'm thinking, I've got a feeling that the poet, whoever it is, 
feels the same way that she does about yeah. spontaneous orgies breaking out on buses. And I said that to her, and she's like, of course not. Yeah. You know, that's nonsense. This yeah. poet, you know, was just a disgust, you know. Yeah. So then I find him, he's still alive. And it's a, it's the much beloved British poet, Roger McGough, yeah. who was like, yeah, of course. He worked like, for the BBC. Worked for the BBC. Yeah. He was a big, big friend of, he was part of the Liverpool scene when the Beatles were coming up. Yeah. So uh, he used to hang out with Paul McCartney a lot. But yeah. A lot of people associate he was like the poet version of the Beatles in the 60s. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, he's a Catholic. He's, he, like Alice and like me, you know, we look at the dangers of too much permissiveness. Yeah, we sort sure. of think, what's, what, are the, what are the potential problems here? Yeah. But she just refused her. She refused. And it, and it made me realise that, that the reason why she didn't care was because to her intent is just, it's for the privileged. Like... The only thing that matters is the impact that these poet these poems have on. Well, welcome to 2022. Well, exactly. When, of course, we are. Are we you know, yeah. right. So horseshoe theory. Yeah. Now it's the the left who care more about impact than intent. So I think that one of the things um, that and we must remember to go back to Isaac. Isaac. No, I know this is. I think that people who listen to this podcast know that it gets a bit circuitous sometimes because I'm particularly when things I'm very interested in. I don't even know where to start. Um, you know, I think that's one of the interesting things about this podcast is that if you believe, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that there is an ideological slant to the culture wars in one's negative, one's positive, one is the bulwark against the the people trying to sack the temple. It, you can listen to this and realize that that's not true because I think you're fair to everyone that everyone engages in this at some point, don't they? Yeah. Like, you know, there's a, I came across a story um, which I really can't even find reference to in the early nineties, a school book, uh, controversy in my home city of Boston and Brookline and people being brutalized for, for opposing these kind of DEI things, an early version of it. Mm. And they were basically run out of town for it. Wow. And so you see this in both, in both, um, and, no. and yeah, and I just read this morning that the new Virginia governor. I only read the headline, yeah. so this is I'm breaking my own yes. law here. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Which you do mention in the podcast that Facebook or Twitter tells you. Did you just read the headline? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> but apparently the, the Virginia governor, the new Virginia governor, wants a tip line where you can report teachers for wrong yeah. think, and of course. This is from this coming is from the bad. right, not the left. Yeah, this is a bad, yeah. And, and, yeah. You, and my own book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, did you know that was banned by a school in Arizona? Yeah. Which, you, and, you mentioned that in the, in yeah. the show. Yeah. yeah. This is how ubiquitous the culture was. It become that even my, even So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is frankly a, a book, without blowing my own trumpet, a book that's liked by people across the political yes, spectrum. Yes, very much so. Yeah. 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 Um, even that has now been considered. And what was the what was the thing that animated uh, that banning? A fleeting but uh, but contextually appropriate reference to bestiality. Oh yeah, and what? And it was in a chapter in which yeah, yeah it was just yeah. a little funny. It was in a chapter, a kind of tangential chapter. Will I tell you the reference? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was actually my friend Starly Kind. She went on a radical honesty course and came yeah. back and told me that at the beginning of this course. So this is about you know letting the shame out, narrowing mm. the gap between. Yeah. I say, and so you've been publicly shamed about Joan Lehrer, in fact. Yeah. I say that our shameworthiness lies in the space between who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. Yeah. And the narrower the gap is, the less shame, the, the less anyone can shame you. That's right. Yeah. Trump managed to narrow the gap 
completely. Right? <laughs> There's no gap left. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Starley went on this thing, which was all about narrowing the gap. And, mm-hmm. and, and at the beginning, everybody in the circle had to go around and tell the circle a secret that they have never told anyone about themselves. Mm-hmm. So the first person said, okay, my secret is that I haven't paid taxes in 10 years. And everyone went, Oh, yeah, yeah. that's a bit of yeah. shit. <laughs> and then the next person said, my secret is I murdered a man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was in, I was in a truck <laughs> and, I, and I opened the passenger door and I kicked the guy out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he got run over and I got away with it and nobody knows that I murdered a man. Yeah. And then the next person <laughs> said, like, whoa, like, I don't know how I'm going to, how am I going to follow that? I suppose I can tell you that I have sex with my cat. And then the murderer puts his hand up and says, do do, do you mind, can I add something to to my secret? Uh, And group said, yeah. And he said, I I also have sex sex with my cat. (laughs) He didn't want to be upstage. So that was a little funny aside uh, that that got my book banned in Phoenix. That is that is amazing. Yeah. Book banned in Phoenix for that reference, which yeah. which sounds like a joke. It sounds like you're yeah. delivering. Yeah, I mean, an I just joke. thought yeah. when Starley told me that, I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and because so you've been publicly shamed was in danger of uh, being too, I guess, bleak or or depressing or yeah. stressful to read. You know, when there's an opportunity for a joke. You, 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 so, but this is this is a theme, obviously, in your recent work. And I was going to mention this, but I didn't remember if we mentioned this when we talked before on the fifth column, the butterfly effect. I don't know if we talked about that. But I can't remember. I can't remember. But, um, you know, August Ames, and I think I had maybe something to do with that, too. I don't know if you know that. No. Well, her, her, um, oh, yes. yeah. Oh, my God. I told, I told you, yes. I told him to contact you because I met him when I was shooting something about a proposition in LA that was going to force condoms onto, and I met him and and we went to the same university and we had a nice conversation. And then he contacted me and I said, you know, if this, what you say is true about, about his porn star uh, wife uh, was being bullied, she committed suicide. I said the person to adjudicate that would be John. And he hasn't talked to me since, but mm. <laughs> so. yeah, no, he wasn't happy with the thing. I, I think, yeah, I think I pretty much yeah. everybody, I yeah. think pretty much everybody else in the show was, he, yeah. he was the one person who wasn't happy. Yeah. So that, so, yeah. but in that, you know, that is, there's an element of shaming in that, that, that motivates the piece. Was this woman shamed into suicide? And it's a larger thing about the porn industry, et cetera. Yeah. And this, series now is some shaming elements at the beginning of the culture war. So you've been publicly shamed. What is it that brings you maybe at this stage in your life or after like, why, why now that you are focused so much? Is it, is it a result of your interactions with social media? I mean, why is this interest you so much? Yeah. Well, specifically the reason why I wanted to make things fell apart was since I'd say about 2017, I started to really notice people going nuts online. Yeah. Um, and in terms of fighting culture wars. So it wasn't necess- it wasn't the wars that interested me quite as much as the intensity with which people were can fighting I, them. Can I m- maybe ask you about somebody that you might want to not want to talk about? Sure. But if it's someone I feel like uncomfortable about, I will tiptoe very gently tip-toe around, around it. it. then. I think you probably will. Yeah. Was a, and I thought this might come up because you mentioned at the beginning friends that have been affected by this. And I thought of Graham Linehan. 
Right. Well, now, Graham, I, and just give people a background, is an amazingly talented comedy writer. He wrote Father Ted, uh, one of my favorite episodes of I'm Alan Partridge. He's yeah. a great Irish singer, incredibly, scene, incredibly talented. talented and funny, who, uh, and this is me talking, not John, seemed to throw his career away, in a way, to get involved in trans issues. And from the perspective of you know, trans women aren't women, that kind of thing. And I saw you early on in this interacting with him about it online. Did, mm. did that have some kind of motivating effect on you? Because you're friends with him, right? Yeah, I, I had enormous, I mean, we used to play poker together. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I'd actually, uh, I played poker at his house one time and uh, Ricky Gervais was was playing <laughs> poker with us at the same time. And and there was two women, Graham's wife, Helen, and Louise Wenner from the band Sleeper. Yeah. So they like left the room together. And then came back. And when they came back, Ricky Gervais pointed at me and said, you would not believe the sexist shit he came up with <laughs> while you were gone. Anyway, that's, <laughs> I just remembered that as we were talking. <laughs> Ricky Gervais is, you know, people try to cancel him too. <laughs> right. but, uh, but, so but yeah, yeah, we were, we were, we, I, I had not, I knew Graham so well that I sat in the audience of his very first sitcom, which nobody ever saw, called Paris. I sat in the audience of Father Ted and I sat in the audience of the IT you crowd. You the audience of Father Ted? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, really? Yeah, for one episode. God, you're old, John. That's amazing. <laughs> Fuck uh, it. Um, I, so are you friends now? No. And that's because of this culture war issue? Yeah, I mean, it's not... I should say, like, it, for me, it, it was about the kind of intensity, the, the intensity with which Graham was fighting the battle. Why do you think that was? Um, it's not as if he has any horse in this race other than he thinks, you yeah. know, very strongly about one issue. But it's very interesting to me, people that, that take those issues and really let it kind of overwhelm their life. Yeah. Well, I think Graham's a, a particular case, like yeah. a particular set of circumstances, um, which I sort of don't want to. I mean, it's fine. I mean, yeah, if you don't want to, but I mean, I mean it's but, just I, but he's kind of ruined his life in a way by this. He's he certainly has entrenched himself in a very particular and I would say pretty sort of extre extreme position. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it feels at this stage like it would be very difficult for him to. He's never going to make another TV show, do you think? I'll be honest. I mean, there's no it's way that with the toxicity, mm. I mean, he's been kicked off of Twitter. I mean, what yeah. people believe J.K. Rowling is, he might actually be, right? Somebody who's really, really obsessed with an issue. Mm. And I'm not, by the way, that's not a pejorative. I'm not saying it's a wrong, he's wrong or right. I don't really know. I don't follow this issue very closely. But I just noticed that in the beginning of this series, when you said the culture yeah. war that has overwhelmed people that you know, I said, John's talking about Graham. I wonder uh, if it's going to yeah. get to it. And yes, I, I was talking about Graham and, and other people too, a few other people too. But I decided not to, I decided not to go into it because um, I decided pretty early on that the best way to do this series was to tell origin stories, yeah. was just to yeah. go back to, to find the pebble thrown in the pond. And Graham's not an origin story. Yes. He's a result. He's a result. Yeah. So that's the reason why. Do you why. think that that's a friendship that could ever be repaired? Um. I would be happy to repair the friendship, but I don't think Graham would ever feel because that way. You've, because you've criticised him. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the moment... I'd assume that people like that need all the friends they can get at the moment. I was... I was Okay, I made this mistake that I regret, which was that I, I kept out of the whole thing. I just... Because I, I don't like... Conf I don't see the point yeah. of getting involved in conflict. The way I like to tell stories is in a gentle, humanistic, curious, patient way. Yeah. 
I'm not a, I don't have, I don't have the stomach for, a ba- for the it's battle. It's the key to your success, too. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, what literally happened, uh, and this was my entire contribution, actually, to, um, what literally happened was, uh, um, I was, I was on tour, this was like 2017, and mm. I was in Scotland, and I was falling asleep, and I was on Twitter, and I noticed somebody tweet Graham to say, why is John Ronson following you on Twitter? So I just thought, I don't want to be any part of this. So I just tweeted, please leave me out of this. And then I fell asleep. And then the next morning, I noticed that Graham had responded to this woman, something along the lines of, uh, because he thinks you're all assholes, or something like that. So he's claiming you for his side. Yeah, without us ever having any conversation about it at all. So in a flash of anger, which I regret, I tweeted to him, uh, I don't you know, I don't think you critics are ourselves. Um, and, and I think you've been acting like a bully. So that's what, that's what's up. I think I remember this, by the yeah, way, which is I, why it stuck in my head. And that was, yeah. that was it. Like that was the, yeah. that was the entire, that was like it. Like, I think people think that I am writing, you know, these kind of, but that was it. Yeah. And, and as a result of that, it, he's, you know, I mean, I've hun- like hundreds of tweets about me. It's really interesting, too, because, I mean, I don't know if he knows this. And without naming names or anything, I mean, to, 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 to tell people kind of how, you know, broad-minded and ecumenical you are about these things. Like, I know you have friends that are broadly, probably not with his his intensity, on his side of the debate. And you are very good friends with them, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, and, and also friends on the other side, too. Yeah. Right? No, no, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I believe, you know, I... I I I'm not so stuck in my ways that I'm not willing to to, to yeah. listen to other people's points of view. And I get, I learn interesting things from people on the left. I learn interesting things from the center and, and from the right. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, people have been kind of deranged by this in a way. I think that it's probably recent development. I don't remember this level of derangement maybe in the mid-2000s or something. Right. But no, it's true. But, but it's true that um, that was one of the motivating... It, it wasn't the, the, the war over trans rights anywhere near as much as as me trying to understand somebody like Graham. And, and, there's, and there's a lot of people like Graham out there. Obviously, there's a lot of people in lots of different culture wars yeah. who are fighting it with such an intensity. It's having a very big impact on their personal lives. How did we get here? And, and I wanted to make a show that wouldn't become a part of the culture war. You say that explicitly. Yeah. I, in the sh- and I think it is in the the... Schoolbook one in which you say, you know, I at yeah. the risk of sounding like I'm taking sides in the culture war. Right. Yeah, because I sort of think, well, A, when you listen to podcasts about the culture wars that take a position that, yeah. are, that are part of the culture wars. I'm not familiar with any of those, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> you 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 have certain certain feelings yeah. like come out. Like, you know, yes, I agree with Michael that this is a terrible thing. Yeah. Like, um, and so you sort of get annoyed and you get animated and you get galvanized. Mm. But I was thinking, well, what happens if I make a series about the culture wars that doesn't intend to instill those, that doesn't make people angry and doesn't take sides? What what will be there instead in the space where anger usually is? What would be there instead? I mean, you're, and, yeah, you're being, I mean, you're in some ways being slightly confessional, but being the only stuff that is that is out there. And I saw those tweets with... Graham Linehan, but, you know, to, yeah. to, to, to be uh, similar. I mean, I've noticed when my co-host and dear friend Camille Foster uh, wrote a, uh, an op-ed piece for the New York Times along with uh, Jason Stanley, 
from Yale who's uh, wrong about most everything, but um, we've had him on the show and he's a nice guy and I don't really care. Uh, I want to have him on again so I can yell at him because I like yelling at him because he's a nice guy. Um, and Thomas Chatterton Williams and the response to that, and this was about the CRT stuff saying, we, well, two of the three saying we loathe this stuff. Uh, the two black people, by the way, say we love this stuff. And right. the white guy saying, no, it's great. Um, and then um, the response to that by friends, former friends, I it really alarmed me that this has gotten crazy because I just don't, maybe it's a personality thing and maybe it's always been like this and I've just been missing it, that I just can't get that, get exercised about people's opinions like that. But something seems, you know, unique about this time in history that people do. Yeah. I think it's partly to do with the fact, as I, as I show, we must get back to Isaac. Yeah, point. yeah, we're going to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as I, um, as I say, That's going to be the line for the whole thing. We're going right. back to Isaac. Yeah. Uh, as I talk about in episode five of Things Fell Apart, about the fact that the internet was designed by libertarian yeah. engineer sure. tech utopians. Yeah. And that's got an awful lot to do with it, I would say. They very argumentatively, when there was a chance to maybe come up with like a different tone to the internet. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying I've got the answers, but there was a moment in like 1987. You think, you think that there could actually have been a tone set that people would follow? Don't you think that? I mean, probably not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, our worst instincts are going to be allowed to be in full yeah. display at, when at the, no one's watching. Right. Right? At the same time, I think it didn't help. That the, the internet was being controlled by argumentative, pedantic, yeah. uh, libertarian. You can just say libertarians because argumentative and pedantic is just part right. of the definition. Yeah. Um, and I said yeah. on a personal level, yeah, yeah. Like, <clears throat> I've, I've, I enjoy the company of libertarians. Yeah. But, I don't. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't think we should be forced to spend 20 years at their party, but I think which one is, of the, what, yeah, which is basically I think, what we've done. Yes. I, I think yeah. one of the most, I mean, well, it's, it's now we're getting the boomerang period of that where it's going the other direction. Yeah. Where I think, yeah. Peter Thiel left Silicon Valley and moved to LA because he felt that Silicon Valley wasn't libertarian anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And Miami too, because of, you know, probably taxes also. But uh, let's talk about that episode because you talk about a guy who's Canadian, mm. uh, was at the University of Waterloo. And he's half Jewish, half Irish. Oh, no, he's not. Uh, he's not. No, I, I, the reason why you, you think that is yeah. because I said in the podcast that, because he made this joke that, oh, yeah, he did. No, yes, you're right. Yes, you're yes. right. Sorry, I forgot. Yeah. You're right. You're right. So, and, and a little setup of this is you refer to him as kind of the first person to create this kind of, and I hate the word cancel, but kind of cancel backlash <clears throat> very early in the Usenet world. Yeah. Well, he is the first <clears throat> person, I think I can safely yes, say yeah. he is, because we did quite a lot of like, are we sure that we're yeah. not overstating this claim? Yeah. Uh, he is the, his name's Brad Templeton and he's the first person ever to be publicly shamed because of something they did on the internet. And he told a joke. Yeah. Well, actually, he, a little bit like Wordle, he had like a joke of the day that yeah. would auto, that his computer would automatically send out each day onto Usenet. Which at the time was probably a engineering marvel to have yeah. that sent out every day. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So by bad coincidence, um, the yeah. joke that was spat out one day uh, was deemed anti-Semitic and anti-Scottish, and it was on the anniversary of Crystal Nacht. It was on November 9th. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On the anniversary of Crystal Nacht. And, yeah. the, and the, the joke was based, I won't tell, I mean, it's a terrible joke. Yeah. Mainly bad because people just don't, when they hear it, they still don't get it. 
Yeah. But the upshot of the joke is Jews and Scots don't want to pay for dinner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in, in if for those of you who don't remember, because it doesn't exist anymore, the stereotype of Scottish people that they are cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, the, cheap the Jewish... Cheap and violent. Yeah. Because the Jew and the Jew... Actually, it's worse when you think about yeah. it. So the Jew is manipulative. He's manipulating Tell the, the Scot. People have to understand the Jew. Okay, a Jew yeah. and a Scot are having dinner. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, when the bill comes... John Ronson is Jewish, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm Jewish yes. and my wife is Scottish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, when the bill... And anti-Semitic, but continue. <laughs> when the bill comes, the Scot is overheard to say, I'll pay. Mm-hmm. The headlines in the newspaper the next day say, Jewish comedian found dead in alley. Mm-hmm. No, Jewish ventriloquist found dead in alley. Exactly. So... Yeah. <laughs> The scenario is that the, the bill comes, the Jewish guy throws his voice yeah. uh, says to the, and makes the Scot appear to pay, yes. and the Scot murders the, yeah. the Jew. And I have to say, in the episode in which you discuss this, you underplay the fact that this joke is kind of funny. You were like, I don't find this funny. I'm like, it's, it's not right. bad. Come on, no, it's not no, What I said was yeah. it, 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 has all the, it has all the combination of words that yeah. approximate a yeah. joke, yeah. which it does. It does. And, and, but but <laughs> this guy, this goes out on November 9th, at, uh, Chris Allnock, which, by the way, you can make the defense, which November 9th, by the way, is one of the most momentous days in German history. It is the armistice in 1918. Mm. It is the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's a lot of November 9th. So you could, right. you could uh, but it is also Chris Allnock. 1938. <laughs> yeah. And um, so this joke goes out and it enrages one person in particular. Yeah, enrages a guy at MIT. Now, Usenet, what's really interesting is that Usenet at the time is, is really, it's a tiny little elite that are using yeah. it. It's, ac- yeah. it's academic and tech institutions. Smart people. Yeah. So yeah. this one guy at MIT takes offense and uh, co-opts a local journalist in Waterloo, Canada and Ontario and um, gets the joke Gets hit, gets the University of Waterloo, who were hosting his comedy site, to shut him down. So he's the first person ever to be cancelled, quote unquote. But he also does something that I think is really interesting, especially looking at it from today, is that he says publicly, or maybe it's an email with his, or in communication with his uh, then roommate who you talked to, I mean, he's since passed on, that we have to find out what what his company does yes. and target the company, which is yeah. a very modern thing, right? Yeah, straight away they were looking to get his livelihood. For this joke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so cut to Stanford. So um, the joke is also proliferating around Stanford, but yeah. at Stanford, it's the architects of the internet. It's John McCarthy, the father of AI. Peter Thiel's there as yeah. an undergraduate. That's right, yeah. Uh, it's, and Stanford has the reputation for being, what do they call it, town and gown. Mm-hmm. So the creation of the internet and Stanford University were just inextricably linked. Yeah. And so they had to decide, what do we do about this joke? Do we ban it or do we let it flourish? And the libertarians very vociferously said, no, you know, you can't stop the machine. The machine must do whatever the machine can do. Mm-hmm. And won the argument entirely and just decimated anybody who was like talking about censorship and did they win the day? They, yeah, they, you think so? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, it feels to me like no. When you, when I say this, and again, <clears throat> I'm going to be John Ronson about this and say that I'm not taking a position. I'm just, you know, when you look at the number of people, like we were just talking about Graham Lennon, your former friend. He's not allowed on Twitter anymore. And that's a pretty big platform. But that's that, very new. Uh, it's very new. So yeah. I'm just wondering, did they win ultimately? Do we think oh. we're going to a direction in which 
let the machine allow the joke and let the people adjudicate whether it's offensive or not. Right. Are we at that point now? Exactly. No, it's, it, I think that, that world continued unencumbered right up until what? A long time. Yeah, until yeah. like three or four years ago. So yeah. eight, seven, nine, seven, seven. So for 40 years, that was the internet that we lived in. And it's only just changing now. Why do you think that is? Because do you think it is as a result of things that have happened in the real world, which is becoming less violent, is becoming less racist. There are fewer murders. I mean, we have a spike now, but like everything is trending and not to sound like Steven Pinker, but everything's trending in the right direction. And so now, why, why gonna... is it now that it is like, we have to deal with this problem and, and like mm. extirpate these bad ideas from the internet? I sometimes think people in the center underestimate, not everyone, of course, but yeah. some people underestimate just the shock of the Trump presidency. I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah. And and then George Floyd's murder a few years later. So you think without those two events would be in a different space? Probably. I would. Publicly shamed happens before that, before both of those events though. Yeah. Right. So there's a little element of public shaming and of really working people over. And of course you start the book and if people yeah. haven't read it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a classic in my mind already. Cause it's just, uh, you do such a fantastic job with it is, um, the woman at IAC Gawker mm. shames her has what's her name landed, uh, uh, uh Justine, Sacco. Justine Sacco, who makes a joke and you make a, a very convincing case that the joke is widely misunderstood. But the interesting thing about this case is that she lands in South Africa, no internet on the plane, to a life that has been utterly ruined. While she, had, she was asleep in the plane. While she was asleep in the plane, which is very frightening. Yeah, it's but like the, torture. Like, I, but you know, the, the what about the man staring? 200 people that follow her. That's yeah. what was like, the cruelty of it at that point was that she wasn't a person of any consequence. No, 170 people. She had 170 oh, yeah. Twitter followers. Yeah. Uh, I said to her, like, did you know, because she said, like, well, she did this joke, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. Yeah. Nobody replied. I said, were you disappointed? She was like, that no one replied. That no one ever replied to any of my jokes. <laughs> like she was a comedian yes, yes. telling bad jokes in an, an empty, empty room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But one of them sent it to Sam Biddle at Gorka, and yeah. yeah. Then by the time she was asleep, she was asleep, and and he he didn't seem to have much. He mm. didn't feel bad about that, did he? Well, he said something to me that yeah. has stayed with me ever since, and has really impacted pretty much everything I've done since, including things fell apart. I asked him how it felt to have started the onslaught against Justin Sacco, and he said it felt delicious. And then he said, but I'm sure, I'm sure she's okay now, or she'll be fine eventually, if not already. And, mm. and I just thought, well, that's a very glaring example of cognitive dissonance. We want mm. to hurt people and not feel bad about it. So we either, we yeah. either demonize them as a psychopath or a narcissist or whatever, or we just assume that they're fine now and then just happily go along with our day. So that cognitive yeah. dissonance it, yeah, it has sort of followed me. So in episode four of Things Fell Apart, I talk about this woman who was sentenced to 47 years in jail for crimes that Absolutely ever happened. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah, during the satanic panic. And the point I really hammer home in that episode is that you might think that the modern day equivalent of the satanic panic is QAnon, but just as relevant, just as much of an echo, is the way that we all behave on social media, we when when the flame burns hot, when we think we're behaving uh, in a moral cause, we behave more violently, and that's what happened with Kelly when word got around this these insanely obviously untrue allegations about sexual abuse that she had done at the daycare centre. Yeah, I, I want to explain something just to people. If you don't remember this, the Satanic Panic happened. 
Uh, when I was growing up, it was in Massachusetts, the Amaralt family um, that had a daycare center. And it went, Washington State had one, New Jersey, which is the one you focus on, yeah, California. Uh, California. And the panic was that children were being molested in a kind of, with some sort of satanic rituals by people at daycares, and people went to prison for this. Yeah. Uh, it was exactly how it sounds. It's completely insane. Uh, the allegations were like nuts. Nuts. Um, yeah. I mean, Kelly, who I focus yeah. on, uh, was accused of playing Jingle Bells naked. Yeah. This was at a church where people were like coming and going all day. Yeah. But you had allegations like oh, we were taken to a cemetery and we had to dig up the bodies and yeah. then the bodies were violated. And then yeah. we were taken back to daycare just in time for our parents to pick us up Yeah, uh, with no mud on their clothes. So these were like insane allegations. But, but the reason why, yeah. and this is, I think, what we can learn from and why I think the modern day parallel of this is the way that we behave on social media just as much as QAnon uh, is that, you know, when when you're fighting a moral cause, yeah. all rationality goes out of the window sometimes. So these parents, these mothers who were dropping their kids off at daycare, newly opened daycares, newly working mothers, very feeling guilty. Um, and, and the guilt turns into suspicion about the people who run the daycare. Uh, and then they're told these terrible things happened at your child's daycare yeah. and you missed it. That made them so that's right, yeah, so guilty, so ashamed that they become like you know warriors for the prosecution, and a similar thing happens on social media when we think we're fighting in a moral cause we we behave more violently i th one slight difference I would say, and I think that's okay. a, that's exactly right, but <clears throat> if you take something that is not an exact parallel, so don't <clears throat> think that I'm saying that it is because these things actually happened, but there's some elements of them that didn't happen, right so we get to the point of the Me Too movement, and I don't want to, again, they're not, they're not the same thing at all. But I did actually see this from the inside at certain places, and I think the one difference was, is that there was so much fervor, and there was a reckoning that needed to happen, right? So people took this, and the satanic panic didn't happen, so it's completely fake, right? But the difference, I would say, is that when people spoke out about that um, at the time, it fell on deaf ears, but they weren't afraid to speak out about it because I knew people that were actually accused of things that I know very well. I knew the situation very well. I've talked about it on the podcast, uh, this one that really affected me. And I said, y you know, you got to fight back against this because it's not true. And I was not willing to raise a voice in defense of mm -hmm. somebody because it, I didn't want to appear to be somebody who took these issues as not serious, as like, you know, victim blaming, et cetera. The difference of the, that now it's so much worse in a sense that this, you have Dor Dorothy Rabinowitz, who writes an amazing book called No Crueler Tyrannies. You have a lot of people who come forward and fight tooth and nail for these people. Yeah. Dorothy Rabinowitz, who's the woman who got Kelly yeah, out yeah. of jail, who's the, who, along with yeah. the civil rights lawyer, uh, who I didn't meet or speak to because I just felt that Kelly told the story so well. I, yeah. I just didn't need another voice. She's quite there. old now too, yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, she said something that really, that I felt was very resonant of today. She said that uh, she went into the office. I think it was, was it Harper's? Oh, she's a, oh she was a, wrote something for Harper's, but she was the Wall Street Journal. But yeah, okay. she wrote a piece for Harper's about this. Okay. Well, in one of I the, think it was rejected by a, by a few magazines, didn't want to touch it. So right. it might be actually, I might be wrong about that. There might be some people that are afraid of this stuff at the time too. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the offices that she worked in, I'm not sure which one it was, yeah. she said to the younger, to like her younger colleagues, I think there's some problems with Kelly Michaels conviction like these allegations yeah. seem really nuts to me 
Uh, and she said, like, the pushback from her younger colleagues was so ferocious. Yeah, interesting. They just did not want to countenance the idea that this woman wasn't, that Kelly Michaels wasn't a monster, uh, that it made her all the more excited to maybe, investigate. Maybe and of I'm course, you're seeing, yeah. you're seeing that all over the place today. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I mean, maybe what I just said is not true in that it's harder to gauge because there is no social media at the time, but quietly people are pushing back against this. One of the things, the points that you make in this, Mm. Yeah, piece. you know what? Can I just quickly yeah, interrupt? Yeah, sure, so sure. that's true. People think that, like the young, yeah. that the, the the way that young people take over newsrooms of liberal institutions mm. is this kind of modern um, social media thing. But yeah. Dorothy Rabinowitz's story shows that it's been going on, going on forever. Yeah, I, there, I think one of the differences is that peop, the, the older journalists now are terrified of like 25-year-olds. <laughs> and maybe wouldn't go. <laughs> no, they would, not, they would not allow that piece. But you make a point in this, which I think is um, one of the, the, the great echoes of kind of, a, you know, a modern version of this, is that, um, and she makes the point, the one, I'm sorry, what's her name again? The one uh, who's accused. Uh, uh, Kelly Michaels. Kelly, Kelly Michaels says that... Um, her town was full of intellectuals. Yeah, it was a it was a it was a New Jersey commuter belt suburb. So it was people who'd be coming into Manhattan every they day. They weren't to dummies. Work. No, they were highly dummies. educated people. Yeah. And they fell for it completely. Yeah. Uh, as soon as they were told that they had been bad parents, um, I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the guilt they felt about quote unquote abandoning their children to these new, yeah. this new phenomenon known as daycare centers. I mean, I sent you, uh, a couple weeks ago, I sent you the copy of a book, um, mm. well, a link to a book on Amazon, um, of a woman who is writing under a pseudonym about her child being molested by Kelly Michaels mm. and identifies herself as a editor at a big city, like a, like a day, I, presumably the New York Times, right? It could be the Wall Street Journal, but it's a big newspaper in New York. These are not people who are kind of superstitious, naturally, you would think, right? But I thought that was really fascinating of the people who believe that it is only the QAnon types, the goofy knuckle-draggers that believe this stuff. There's a, there's a unique kind of different type, and I'm going to make a modern example of this and tell me why you think this happened, because it's your own country. Right. Oh, your own country's Wales. We won't pretend that it's Wales. <laughs> I don't want to d defame the Welsh people. A um, couple years ago, I was in a bar with a friend of mine, British friend, and I hope he hears this because I love him to death. Um, and he is a very good friend of a mutual friend of yours, but a very close friend. You guys have a very close mutual friend. And we were drunk and we got in a little back and forth. We were very different on politics in a way. Um, and it was a spirited one. And he was telling me about this MP pedophile ring. You remember this? Oh, yeah. Recently. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I said to him... I it was said, all based around this apartment block near the Houses of exactly. Parliament. Exactly. And it had everything. The stone slab that people, you know, the, the, the you know, uh, pentagrams and the upside down crucifix. And I said, you're so smart. You're way too smart. And he's like, he's, he's like, no, nah, it's true. I swear to God, it's true. And I'm like, no, no. He ultimately was like, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the guy who made all the allegations was, was absolutely discredited. Yeah. Why do you think that in this day and age, after we see those satanic things, does this stuff still happen? Well, you know, um, there had been, as, as just as with QAnon yeah. and Jeffrey Epstein, there had yeah. been some real life, pretty stunning um, celebrity pedophiles in Britain, the most famous being Jimmy Savile, yeah. who... 
was like Britain. God, I'm trying to. What's a good American equivalent of Jimmy Savile? Oh, it would be, <laughs> it would be like Mr. Rogers and Gold LeMay. Yeah, like Mr. Rogers but, meets Ed Sullivan. <laughs> Meets, I don't yeah. know, even meets somebody from the Bay City Rollers. He had yeah, outfits he had anywhere. a show yeah. called Jim will fix it. Jim will fix it. Every yeah. child in yeah. Britain, like I wrote to Jim will fix it. Yeah, you write a letter, dear Jim, please can you fix it for me? Yeah, to sing with the Brotherhood of Man. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, this is yeah. like a date set. Yeah. Or, or please will you fix it for me to like fly in a Spitfire? <laughs> 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 and then Jimmy would make your dreams come true. Yeah, but, I yeah. also, but I remember in the 80s, they found a whole load of, in a great early British television scandal, they found a whole load of uh, unopened, like bags of unopened letters to Jim will fix it. Really? Yeah, they just threw out entire sacks. Oh my God. Yeah. And then it turned out that that was the least of Jimmy that Savile's was the, problem. Yeah, right. Yeah. Jimmy Savile used to sit in a big throne and the kids mm -hmm. would have to like sit as his knee. And now when you watch like some old Jimmy Savile footage from the 70s, like when he was presenting Top of the Pops, he was kind of doing it in public. He was He's like, a bit of a pervert. That yeah. was, that's the charge. But then yeah. after he died, and that everyone knew, like yeah. I knew, everyone knew. And this was before I was in the media. Like I didn't have any inside knowledge. Just as a child growing up in Britain, yeah. I knew that there was something deeply weird about Jimmy Savile's sexuality. Like yeah. it, was, it was an open secret. And I think John, John Lydon talked about it. So it was a very open secret. But yeah. then after he died, it turned like a lot of people came forward and it turned out. It was but like, it, it came forward again, like Rolf Harris, a yeah. lot of people. So got, a lot, yeah, yeah. So a lot of people toppled after Jimmy yeah. Savile. Yeah. It's kind of a British pedophile version of, of Harvey Weinstein. Me too. Like, is, like Jimmy it? Savile yeah. was the Harvey Weinstein. Then a lot of other people toppled afterwards. So that was the background to this, to this politician thing. But yeah. then like, lots of politicians names came up. Um, and that side of it just turned out to be just bullshit. Yeah. So, you know, there's a logic to people thinking, well, this may be true, given that Jimmy Savile was constantly hanging out with the royal family, uh, was a was a huge British institution. Yeah. So so it wasn't insane to think that there but, was... So, so that's our transition to Isaac that we've been trying to talk about, right? Sure, yeah. Famous actor, well, not famous actor, but, but an actor doing well, and he moves from New Mexico well. to LA. Very and talented. sometime in that transition to LA, he becomes obsessed with QAnon and conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, this actually predated QAnon. He was a big, he was a Pizzagate believer, and that yes, predated yeah. his moving to, to Hollywood. Okay. But this, like, extraordinary set of circumstances happened when he was in Hollywood, which was he became friends with a pretty highfalutin group of celebrities. Paris Jackson. Paris Jackson, Jackson yeah. and some other people. Yeah. And he was with one of them, and he confided in them like, I'm going to tell you something I haven't told anyone. Um, I mean, I won't, this yeah. is like from reading secondhand accounts of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe that P Pizzagate may be right. There may be a Hollywood pedophile conspiracy. Mm. So this guy who he said it to decided to play a prank on him. Who's a very famous actor. But yeah. And, and, and you don't mention him, but if people, it's very publicly available. But yeah. 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 Uh, he said, it's true. And I have a bookshelf that's actually a secret room and I've got a child kidnapped in this room and if you want to be a big star in Hollywood, just follow me into this room and rape the child. And unbeknownst to this fame, you know, to this Hollywood guy, Isaac, presumably unbeknownst to him at the beginning, Isaac believed it. And clearly 
<laughs> fucking with him, right? Yeah. I uh, mean, uh, to, to, you would assume, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. all rationality would say yeah, that he's yeah, fucking with yeah. him. And, um, but believes it. And for eight months, he's stewing. Finally, he goes on Alex Jones yeah. and, you know, blows the whistle. And even Alex Jones is like, are you sure the guy wasn't playing a prank on you? I, that's the most amazing thing is that the most <laughs> rational person in the story is Alex Jones. With Alex Jones. Like, you know, I, I don't know. This is probably a setup. I don't know what you're doing here. But yeah. like, he says it's probably not true. Right? Yeah. He's thinking, is Isaac setting me up? Or more likely, is this guy, was this guy playing a trick on Isaac? And, and just as a footnote here, both you and I have spent time with interviewed Alex Jones, is that one of the things that Alex Jones, despite the fact that you can't tell how much of this is theater, how much he believes, he does actually have to contend with you know, separating the real lunatics from the sort of normal lunatics, right. which is like, is this one of the real crazies? Because I want to f- uh, weed them out so I don't seem too crazy. And that's what he's thinking, right? Yeah, one of these yeah. things. Um, and so Isaac then, and I think this is where Isaac's narcissism comes in. And I think this is a relevant, I always, you know, particularly after writing The Psychopath Test, which yeah. is a book that's in some ways critical of mental health labeling. Yes. And so I completely understand the anti-mental health labeling argument yeah, 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 and yeah. to a large extent agree with certainly yeah. big chunks of it. Saying that, I I think it 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 would be wrong to ignore the fact that within the leadership of the conspiracy world, yeah. you get a lot of people who clearly score really high on narcissism. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's to do with, you want to be the smartest person in the room. And that often means, and maybe this is the reason why they don't go on about Jeffrey Epstein quite as much as they go on about people who actually aren't pedophiles, mm. because you want to come up with counterintuitive information that other people don't have. And the way to do that is like invent some information. And you're the person who has that knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think, that was triggered in, in Isaac, and then he became a pretty leading voice in in the emerging QAnon. One of the things I wanted, why I brought this up and I wanted to ask you about this, is that when I listened to this episode, I was so fascinated by it. I hadn't heard of this guy, and I try to avoid all those kind of QAnon things because I find them boring and tedious. And- yeah, I was saying to somebody the other day, if you can't... Like, if you can't get to the bottom of, like, who Q is, like, some factual yeah. reality, if you're covering QAnon, you're in danger. It's, it's, you're in danger of, it's like, getting people to describe a dream. It's, it's so just boring. Is, it's funny, That's because that's pretty much what I wanted to ask you about, is that yeah. when I looked this guy up, there was some story about that he'd assaulted Paris Jackson. Yeah. and Which it, I left out for very particular reasons, okay. which, I'll, which I'll tell you if, if you want. Yeah, I mean, why? Because because that, it does, it doesn't contextualize the story that much, but it, it gives you a sense that this guy's, you know, riding these high circles, but there's obviously signs of mental distress with him, et cetera. Yeah. The reason, without going into like massive yeah. detail, the reason why I left that out was because um, Isaac's loved ones took issue with a, with a number of aspects of the choking Paris Jackson story. There was a, a story was circulating that at a party, Isaac had choked Paris Jackson. Mm-hmm. And Isaac's loved ones like took offense to certain aspects of it. And I just realized that like, I didn't want to be the sort of person who would say in the show, and then Isaac was accused of yeah. choking Paris Jackson, but Isaac's family has some problems with with that story yeah. and then i move on yeah, yeah, yeah i kind of felt i either like fucking go for this as a narrative mm. or i leave it completely alone like it need and then i thought well i'm these are short the one of the things i really love about things fell apart is that for me they're like like making little dolls houses yeah like it was so much fun for for a year to just like polish and polish and polish so were i to go down the the yeah. choking allegation road 
it would have been like a month of proper research, like proper investigation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, how the fuck would I get that into the programme anyway? Because the programme's so packed. So so that's why I didn't go you know, down and, But the thing, yeah, so I see that allegation. I see these other things. I see a picture of him, by the way. Mm-hmm. And that is fascinating. Because he, mm-hmm. he, you know, he looks like the bass player on the strokes or something. I mean, he does not look like the QAnon people I've met at Trump yeah. rallies covering them. You know, he, he looks very, very... Yeah. It reminded me of my, of my son and my son's friends. And so I felt a sort of warmth and akin to him yeah. because he reminded me of people that I love. And that's what I find so interesting is because the coverage of him before he died, and, you know, it's not, this is not a novel where we're giving away the end. I mean, you look yeah. guys up, you're going to figure this out, and he, he committed suicide. Well, well, there's some dispute about this. There right? is dispute yeah. about but as a conspiracy theorist, there's going to be a dispute about it, right? <laughs> it appears that he might have... Occam's razor to me suggests that he that there's somebody in that kind of distress who had said the things yeah. that he had said he might have co- committed suicide. O- Occam's razor also it could have been an accidental death. It, like, it could have yeah. been a, a, yeah. just a bad set of circumstances. Like I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and I think the family disputes that too, yeah. right? So I mean, if he might have committed suicide, but it looks like he, he it looks like to me that he did. Um, no final word on that. But I looked at the coverage prior to this, and there was something about it that really turned me off. And what turned me off is that I have myself on this podcast mocked people with these kind of crazy ideas. But there was something about the madness of the Trump people that produced this kind of counter madness that when I saw him, read about him, watched him on Alex Jones show, that I saw this is a man that needs some help. Um, The people waiting for John F. Kennedy Jr. to come back to Dallas to declare himself uh, a, a Trump elector or something and to re like these people have some serious difficulties, serious problems. And I'd heard an interview with an Australian woman whose mother had gone around the band and it was a very sympathetic thing. And she was like, my mother is, this is crazy. And I, I I'm embarrassed by the things that she says, but she kind of charted this mental health decline in the gleeful reports that I saw in the Daily Beast, like, look, this fucking psycho, look at this loser. Like, yeah, D-list no. D-list celebrity. Yeah, Isaac D-list Cathy. celebrity. Like, yeah, no, all of this is true. Like, he believes crazy things. But, you know, as somebody who I associate with empathetic reporting, I see a lot of these people as really broken humans. Yeah. That you can apply your politics to them and say, let's blow up this side of the argument. And you see this a lot now where, you know, a lot of cable people and a lot of Twitter people don't understand the Trump presidency is over because they love fighting these fights. It right. gives them this moral position to be in forever because it's so easy, right? There's no, there's no gray areas in this. I mean, Mitt Romney, you can't do that too, right? And so, and so like, I, I was wondering when you saw this, like, did you see so many of these people that are in kind of personal crisis in some ways that drives them to use the culture war, culture war as a proxy for their personal mm. issues. I, I mean, I am sure that there is truth in that. Yeah. Um, and it becomes, I guess it becomes a self-fulfilling yeah. thing, right? One feeds the other, your social media use. Uh, I read an interesting, again, a headline rather than the entire article. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but, the, but I think it's pretty much established now that certainly people in cognitive behavioral therapy would say that the internet can give us mental illness yeah, uh, because our thought process can give us mental illness. It can go that way. Yeah. And the internet, of course, is leading us to these terrible, toxic, dysfunctional thought processes. So I, so I think it kind of goes both yeah. ways. Maybe, you know, you use 
the internet as a squeeze ball if something bad's happening in your own life, but also vice versa. I think the internet. Uh, yeah, I, I just think, remember yeah, when I yeah. when say you've been publicly shamed. Came yeah. out. You know what you need is a good, supportive, loving family. Mm. When say you've been publicly shamed first came out, and the book had like a, some a little bit of backlash, um, mm. from the left. And I remember uh, being at a restaurant with my wife, and I was so like annoyed, and I was like, you know, they're like the Khmer Rouge. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and my wife was like, they're not like the Khmer. <laughs> So that helped. <laughs> <laughs> the mountain of skulls. Because somebody said big dongle. You can read that and uh, have a been publicly shamed. I mean, my, my response to that for me was a, was an interesting one because, you know, unlike Sam Biddle, and, and it's hard to say because it makes it appear that like I'm I'm the moral exemplar. It's like, no, no, I just it's just cool. I'm just built differently than Sam Biddle. I have no problem with him. But like the way I'm I'm wired is that the reason that became kind of an interesting juxtaposition between Sam Biddle, I think those chapters are next to each other, is that the second I pressed send, I felt like shit for, for well, immediately. Yeah. Well, plus- I still do, by the way. I right. still, I actually still do. And I, I'll tell you something that I, I did send Jonah an email a couple of years ago and said that I'm going to be in LA and I'd like to meet. And for me, it wasn't as if maybe Jonah wants to meet the person that precipitated his downfall. I just felt like I needed to talk to the person that I was instrumental in. Nobody wants to ever change somebody's life in that way. It's just, it's not a good feeling. So what happened? Um, I was on a shoot and um, I, I chickened out. I didn't, I just, I was like, but I didn't did want to. Great. I mean, he did agree. He did agree. Right. Yeah, he did agree. And a friend of mine at the exact same time, this is true, exact same time, uh, was in LA and sent me a message because they were at a restaurant in West Hollywood having dinner with Stephen Glass. <laughs> and, you know, Stephen Glass, the famous uh, yeah. plagiarist and fabulist. And uh, what is, and, and it's so funny because I always compare it to that of like public shaming is that I have, since even the, the, the Jonah thing, I have been publicly advocated for the rehabilitation of Stephen Glass right. because well, it's forever. I, the it's stuff forever. that you do on this show on the fifth column, is, it, it sometimes feels to me that it's... Well, we just that, had that, Mike, that we Mike Pesca place, on, you know? Yeah, right. That is coming from a place of you feeling sort of some moral ambiguity about that situation. I but but what I've got to, to say to you, forever, Michael, you know? is that I don't think, like, look, no. I, don't, I don't want to be any kind of shaming imam or yeah, counsellor. Yeah. <laughs> But you were in a, a difficult, ambiguous situation. Yeah, yeah. Joan Alera, certainly compared to, to, you know, the fake news that's been proliferating yeah, yeah, during yeah, the past so. four years, what he did was was minor. But what he did was more serious than uh, Justine Sacco, of course. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah, and for so, sure. you know, th th so this wasn't a, a moral thing. He was, he was, there were workplace violations. One of the moral difficulties of that, which presented itself to me and I'd never thought about, was that the second I told an editor about it, the the the, the weight was on me. Because what happens when you tell people about this and then you back away from it and say, because that was the attempt, was like, please don't publish this. If I didn't publish the stuff that demonstrated that Jenna was, you know, plagiarizing things and making things up, then I could potentially lose my job. Yeah. You know, I, that was the weird thing. About whatever it, right? you did, you were put in a situation where whatever you did was like a big move. Yeah. Publishing was a big move. Not publishing was a big move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a few people over the years, not a massive amount. Of people, I told but, you things, by the way, I want to point this out publicly right. without saying anything. I told you things about that final couple of days 
that were pretty crazy. Right. Uh, pretty, and you decided not to put them in the book. And there was a couple of a things. A couple of things that were pretty serious. Yeah. And I mean, I, there was some serious stuff in the book about him phoning you like 20. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I still have the screenshots of those missed calls, right. 26. But I, I asked you why. Do you remember? Do you remember me asking you? Because no. I got the galley copy from a Adam Davidson, who actually had a case. He like okay. gave me a galley copy, and uh, I read it, and I was like, "Oh, okay." I didn't know this one sense that there's a journalistic instinct. Like, I'm going to break a little bit of extra news here. It's not a big thing, but it's it'll be unique to this book. And I remember asking you about it, and I think we had, and you said, so I, "I can't remember what I would have answered." It was effectively saying, "I think he suffered enough." Yeah, well, it's what you say yeah. in the book. Yeah. There's this great line that I remember off. That's why I never wrote about it. <laughs> right. Well, well, you say, like, you're looking at all of these people just destroying Joan Alera because he gives yeah. this public apology in front of a giant Twitter yeah, screen yeah, yeah. where people are responding to his public apology in real time, yeah. which I write about and say you've been publicly shamed. And you say that you're watching this and you're thinking, you know, people are stabbing and stabbing and oh, yeah. stabbing and you're saying, but he's already dead. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. you were stabbing a dead body. And, and I, and I, yeah. think, I think I felt the same way. And I, the funniest thing is that um, you're, and I, I, I hope, uh, dear listeners, that you find this stuff interesting because this is just me talking to John about something that happened a long time ago. But I, I, I think it's fairly interesting. I thought the, the moment that I said, you know, John's a really good journalist for a couple of reasons, but I had always liked your stuff and I'd known your stuff. But when I realized that, oh, 99% of people wouldn't have honed in on that. At one point, we were having lunch at a place at in Chelsea. Shop. Yeah, the cook shop in Chelsea. Well, I'm off to off straight up. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. So it's become right. your, your yeah. you know, because I think you I met Justine Sacco there yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to think of it as like the restaurant of, the fancy restaurant of broken lives. <laughs> I, would, I would meet all of these <laughs> broken people. It's amazing because when you said I'm going to lunch in Chelsea, I was like, is he going to cook shop yeah, to right. meet some other broken individual? But I said there of this very, very minor point that had really bothered me, that when Jonah Lara and his apology said, um, a journalist called Michael yes. Moynihan. And I just kind of threw that out because it just pissed me off. And you've included it in the book. And oh, I was like, yeah. Oh, that's I, not only did I include it in the book, I think yeah. of it all the time. Yeah. I have never since said yeah. a writer called this because it, it, it's condescending. It's, it's condescending. a trick of the language. So I always say a now. A very subtle language trick. And, and, and yeah. John is a very clever guy to suggest that I'm a non-entity. Right. Yeah. I yeah. It cha it changed that yeah. it changed the way I live my life. You say yeah. that to me because I always say the writer, blah. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. or, or, or if it's somebody who's not a public figure at all, I don't say like a waitress called. I yeah, say yeah, yeah. A waitress, comma, blah. Yeah. No, it's a little word that indicates stature. Yeah. And it's it's an incredibly uh, sort of small little thing. But I know we're almost out of time, so I want to get to one thing that we talked about. You did something that I um, I hate you for. <laughs> okay. uh, you made me cry. Uh, alone in a car, and I should never admit this, and as I said to you, growing up the way that I did, it was shameful to even cry when there was no one around. <laughs> um, you did an episode on Tammy Faye Baker. T tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and why that sure. was uh, important to you to tell. Well, actually, I've been wanting to do the story for a number of years. Uh, I, about four years ago, I did a shitload of research on Tammy Faye Baker yeah. because I was going to do like a fiction project about her, which I was commissioned to do. Yeah. But then this, the movie The Eyes of Tammy Faye with Jessica Chastain mm -hmm. came out and that sort of killed any chance of my that's right, that's happening. Right, yeah. yeah, so the one aspect of Tammy's story that I just really wanted to get out there was this particular day in her life when she interviewed a gay pastor with AIDS called Steve Peters. Now, this was in the mid-80s when Jerry Falwell was convincing Ronald yeah. Reagan to not say the word AIDS. Mm -hmm. 
you know, Reagan, I think this is like well known now, but Reagan didn't mention yeah. the word for four years. And it was because of Tammy Faye's peer group. But she was feeling isolated from her from her own peer group and was identified. And by the way, a president who through Nancy Reagan had uh, many openly gay friends that they were, they yeah. were friends with. And yeah. apparently on in on in his personal life, he would be very um, warm and affectionate towards people in Hollywood who had AIDS. Yeah. But for, but on a policy level... There's very famous stories about him and Rock Hudson when Rock Hudson was dying and the interactions. But yeah, again, right. it, was, it was not publicly uh, as a sop to yeah. some certain constituencies. Exactly. So he was in Jerry Falwell's pocket and Jerry Falwell... I, I'm not saying... I, I don't know that this is 100% true, but certainly this is how history has... Yes, has, that is certainly yeah. true. I know some people have pushed back on this, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that's true, I had a little bit of pushback yeah. too, which is yeah. why I'm hesitant. But yeah. but anyway, in the midst of all of this, Tammy gets Steve Peters on her show. And it is unbelievable. I watched it again this morning, actually, because I'm doing a stage show in Britain. Uh, Things fell apart live. Yeah. Very, very small stage show in London and Cardiff and a few other places. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I watched them, so I'm going to play a little bit of it. And it's it's just incredible. Tammy, Steve's on a lit. It's a satellite link up. So Steve's sitting on it on an old TV, sitting on a chair with a bunch of flowers on top of the TV, <laughs> and it is profoundly moving. And then I, I'll give away a, a, yeah, yeah. one thing. But what is also profoundly moving is that unbelievably, not only did Steve do so much to put uh, to to bridge the divide between Christian evangelists and and people with AIDS. A human face on yeah, it. Yeah, putting a human face yeah. on it. He's still alive. He is probably the Shit. oldest person. Yeah, who's still, ha he's the, he said to me, if anybody has lived with full-blown AIDS longer than he has, he hasn't heard of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I was shocked. Yeah. Utterly shocked. Incredible. Incredible that this person who did so, such an extraordinary thing historically, but also such an extraordinary thing medically. And you found him. Yeah, I but, found but you, him. Did, when you saw that initial broadcast, did you even bother to look for him? You're presuming he was dead, but you looked for him, you found him, and he was he was quite willing to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, more than willing. I mean, I, and in fact, I talked to him a few years ago. I got put up at the Four Seasons in L.A. <laughs> Usually I stay in the, in the pretty comparatively <laughs> shitty <laughs> Sunset Marquee. I think I sent you a Toyota Corolla Uber to pick you up. So. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah. But I got put up. <laughs> yeah. uh, someone else was paying. And, yeah. and so I sat in that room and, uh, and phoned Steve Peters. This is like three or four years ago. And had like an incredible phone conversation with him. And so when I was doing the Things Fell Apart, I, it's, I just had his brainwave. So my God, like, here's a chance to tell the story. Because it's about a moment. Most of the stories are about the origin moment of how wars start, but yeah. maybe episode three is the origin story of how wars end. Yeah, and it's unbelievably moving. You don't say it in the in the episode, but you said it to me before we started. He's the person that has brought you closest to maybe believing in God. Yeah, because like, why, why is that? Uh, it's he's just such a holy. I, what happened to him is so miraculous, like literally a medical miracle. Yeah. But and he's still a uh, pastor, right? Yeah, still yeah. a pastor, very healthy. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, lots of pictures of him at yeah. Thanksgiving, stuffing down the turkey with his friends. Yeah. Um, so he's a medical miracle. In a way, he's a sort of culture war miracle because yeah. he really did. Um, uh, you know, I spoke to a historian of women in evangelism who said to me that, you know, the, the, si you know, the huge silent impact that that interview had. Mm. Um, and he's just an incredibly... 
you know, that the sun just shines. Yeah, buoyant, fun, yeah. interesting, smart. And, you know, it's, I always find, I asked Andrew Sullivan one time on this podcast, mm. and it produced a really interesting answer. And we were sitting together, and there was the other two guys with us, uh, the other two uh, of my co-hosts. And it was an interesting moment, because, I mean, I'm always fascinated by people like this uh, that have a death sentence hanging over their head. They know it's going to end soon. Mm. We all know it's going to end. It's going to end soon. And then that doesn't happen, and how that affects how they live their lives. Yeah, and it happened to yeah. Wilco Johnson in Britain. Do you know Wilco Johnson? No. From, yeah, from uh, that great pub rock band, Doc, Doctor Feelgood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People would yeah. Uh, people could argue that Wilco Johnson kind of invented punk as much as the New yeah, York Dolls yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was given a death sentence and he went on a final tour and everyone was crying every night. He was told he had like six months to live and this incredibly emotional tour. I think Roger Daltrey might have joined him on tour at one point. <laughs> Audiences crying yeah. every yeah, night. Yeah. And then he like got better. Yeah. Is he still alive? <laughs> yeah, he's doing great. <laughs> well, I, I have told this story in the podcast once in 2009 or 2010. Yeah. I um, knew that Christopher Hitchens was friends with Clive James. I, mm. I, I said, how's Clive doing? And Christopher said, he's dying. And yeah. I said, oh, geez. And he said, yeah, it's bad. And I remember nine years later, reading uh, a poem that Clive James had written called Japanese Maple that was published in the New Yorker and Christopher had dead, been dead for seven or eight <laughs> right, years. And it was right. just like, he, he was pronouncing the death sentence and like, yeah. how are we going to, you know, deal I with know. this? He's a great critic. And, and he, and he died a year and a half later. And Clive uh, used to make these jokes about the kind of Dewey defeats Truman cover of his death. And he's like, they are expecting me to die and I'm not going anywhere. Right. And, um, but just to end on this one, I thought one funny thing about this, Beginning of your of of every episode, you have a little kind of audio montage. Pretty sure that that's Jermaine Greer. Yeah, it is. The amazing thing about that is, is she's the only person in this. I don't know if you noticed this. Who is in the episode on both sides of the culture war? Oh, what? what, what? She's mentioned by the evangelical woman. Oh, in yes, West of course. She, was she like, talks about the female eunuch. Yeah, of course. That the female eunuch being anti-marriage, left-wing yeah. psycho, and then you have her at the beginning on because she's very outspoken. On, uh, on the trans thing. Yeah. yeah, just to remind people of like yeah. the kind of wars that we were talking about. Can I end with a story about Jermaine Greer? Please, please. I, I find her endlessly entertaining. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this story reflects quite poorly on her, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I, but I want you to know that I... I know that people you know, don't love her. In, in yeah, yeah, but yeah. she's done so much for yeah, yeah, society. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not undermining her yeah. importance. Yeah. So uh, I've never been a critic, Yeah. but once in a while, especially when I was younger, I was, you know, people like invited me to be like on a round table or something. So there was a show in Britain called Newsnight Review and they invited me on to like try me out as a critic. And oh, I was no. 22 years old or something. <laughs> and uh, Jermaine Greer was one of my fellow people. I swear to God, every time the camera was on me, like, so John, what did you think of this film? Uh, Jermaine Greer sitting next to me was pulling faces to try and put me off <laughs> like, seriously yeah like a like a lion try, like, ex, like and she's a very fierce person yeah, yeah asserting dominance over yeah. her world yeah like wanted me to fuck up and was like pulling these faces and trying to like distract me so i wouldn't yeah. you know so i wouldn't answer the question well and i wasn't very good on that show and 
the the look of satisfaction like on her face like i i did I you ever it. talk to her again did no i never again? spoke to her again but i swear that happened I, I think one of the funnier things about these culture wars is that there is you 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 trace them kind of coming from america they always kind of start there and filter over yeah. one of the interesting mutations of it is particularly on this trans issue and it's interesting anyone who listens to podcast now we never talk about this because right. it's just a road that number one i don't want to go down yeah. number two i don't really get It'd take too much. I've got too much time in my, not enough yeah. time in my life to get it. Katie Herzog was saying on Blocked and Reported a few episodes ago that whenever they talk about trans issues, like a bunch of their listeners are like, you know, can you, can you stop? Like, yeah. 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 And, no, totally. and, I'm, and I'm one of those listeners. I'm like one of those listeners who, who sort of thinks, oh, I'm one of, you know, who thinks like, you're so great. You know, you two are, are so smart, eloquent, funny, so smart. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. I, I always cigar another trend. You no, know. as I always say, they're the best fifth column cover band. So I want to make sure that they're <laughs> they're doing the best. And if they were really covering us, they wouldn't talk about trans issues. But in England, how that has worked is that it's totally different. Like the turf thing came from there in the sense that all these radical, uh, uh, Julie Bindle, all these people that are radical feminists, you know, left-wing people, it's this internecine battle there of like left-wing feminists versus more younger kind of trans-interested feminists. And it's funny to watch all these mutations of the culture war, and it makes me think it's never going to fucking end. Yeah. I'll tell you what I think will end, and then I really have to go because I'm going to be late from the friend. Oh, yeah. fuck, I'm already going to be late for her. Uh, I think 10 and 11-year-old kids... Um, are a little bit sick of the stringent draconian rules that their older siblings have bestowed upon the world you yes. know, about saying the wrong thing. And I've got a feeling there's going to be a generation of young people coming up who aren't going to be like radically different yeah. to their like, older siblings on the left, yeah. but will be just a little bit more chill out. I think that's true. I don't talk to my daughter about politics, but she brings up some things one time. She's like, why does this happen? And I'm like, oh my goodness. Right. John Ronson, um, thank you so much. Uh, the podcast is things fell, not fall, fell yeah. apart, which sounds like the an Adam. etymology of it. Yes, right? I do. And, but it sounds like an Adam Curtis movie, by the way. Your friend Adam <laughs> Curtis. Things fell apart. Well, I've always, it's very true, but I've always loved that Yeats poem <laughs> yes. and uh, Mere Anarchist Loosed Upon the World. What's the next line? in that? The, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. <sighs> I only know Philip Larkin poems, which I think okay. probably says something about me. The falcon cannot find the falconer. Things fall apart. Yeah. The center cannot hold. Yes. The best, the best lack all something while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Well, we'll, we'll make sure you know this for your next interview. Yeah. And then <laughs> Satan yeah. slouches towards Bethlehem to so, be born. Well, yes, both center cannot hold and both yeah. now deceased. Yeah. Um, well, that's another episode. But thank you so much. Buy all the old books. There's nothing that will disappoint you in any of them. And this is now open to anybody to listen to it. It was pay before, but now you can get it anywhere. Right? Yeah, it's totally free on, on pretty much every podcast platform. Things fell apart. Eight episodes. If you're just going to listen to one, listen to episode three. If you're going to listen to all of them, please start at the beginning. Yeah. And if you don't like it, I don't want to ever talk to you. So yeah. you can go fuck yourself if you don't like it. It's amazing. Thank you, John. Appreciate Michael, it. it was a pleasure. The Indians send signals from the rocks above the pass The cowboys take position in the bushes and the grass The score is with the corporal, she is tied against the tree She doesn't mind the language, it's the beating she don't need She lets loose all the horses when the corporal is asleep And he wakes to find the fires dead and arrows in his axe And Davy Crockett rides around and says it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats Ooh.
Cause Sweeney's doing 90 Cause they've got the world to go They get a gang of villains in a shed up at Heathrow They're counting out the fivers when the handcuffs lock again In and out I once were with the numbers on their names It's funny how the missus always looks a bleeding same And meanwhile at the station there's a couple of likely lads Who swear like as your father and they're very cool for cats They're cool for cats the mood a little, I've been posing down the pub I'm seeing my reflection, I'm looking slightly rough I fancy this, I fancy that, I wanna be so flash I give a little muscle and I spend a little cash But all I get is bitter and a nasty little rash And by the time I'm sober